ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everyone in between or irrespective of that binary, welcome back to our second introduction episode of LGBTMD, a Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition actual play podcast staffed entirely by members of the LGBT community. As you learned last time, I'll be your dungeon master. You can call me Andy because that's my name. Joining me up first this time would be Max. Max, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and the character that you will be playing today. Hello, um, I'm Max. I am a uh, trans guy and I'm on HRT. I will be playing Renee, who is a elf blood boy who is a pirate. Nice. So we will pick up with Renee's backstory. The Lindy Corps is sailing into the city of Portless on the east coast of Eloria. It is a large wooden ship with black sails that anybody would pretty much be able to tell belongs to pirates. Specifically, this boat belongs to Koseros, a green-scaled dragonborn captain dressed in what you would consider traditional pirate regalia, the whole tri-corner hat, black vest, and so forth, including a scimitar that always stays on his hip. He steps up to a small-framed human on the edge of the deck, the salty sea air whipping in their faces as he places a large hand on the boy's shoulder. Bit of a homecoming for you, isn't it, Renee? When was the last time you were in Aluria? Um, maybe a decade, sir. That's quite some time for you humans, isn't it? Mm, Well, I wouldn't know. Ah, yes, sorry, I I forget. Uh, You'll excuse me for my memory. It's not quite what it used to be, you know? Too many conks on the head? Something like that. Between that and the rum, I'm not quite the dragon I used to be. (laughs) All your scales are still shiny, sir. He sort of pats Renee on the shoulder with a chuckle and says, So, uh, oh, this cough, it's been bare to shake. But, uh, what are your plans when we get into Portless, sir, boy? Mm, I don't know. Probably roll by the withered flower. See mine, girl, Get some drinking in and uh, hopefully not get in a fight. Well, just make sure you can make it back to us tomorrow in one piece, eh? If Juno doesn't keep me too late, maybe. No promises, though, sir. He pats Renee on the shoulder again before leaving off towards some of the other crew, giving them orders for how to dock his prized ship into the harbor. It's shortly after that that the ship does pull into the harbor. Portless is a fairly bustling city, one of the major ports on the east side of Aluria. The group of you, though you are quite obviously pirates, are still able to slip in fairly undetected. You notice that uh, Koseros hands a fairly sizable sack of what you can only assume to be gold coins off to the dockmaster as the group of you walk the I guess you'd call it a plank down to the main dock. And Renee is free to go about whatever he chooses to do in this city. Well, uh, Renee follows up on his promise to visit a brothel. As he steps inside, even though by his own admission, it's been close to a decade since he's last been there. He sees a uh, middle-aged human man that's sort of working the front area. He arches his eyebrows at him and says, Renee, been 
quite a while since I've seen you around these parts. Good to see you. Hmm. Do you remember that tiny little redhead named Juna? Kind of squeaky voice. She's still working? Oh, yeah. She's one of our top earners. (laughs) I assume you're back for another round? Oh, yeah. Well, you remember the rules, I trust. Leave all your weapons up here. Don't want anything to happen to one of our girls. Oh, Juna? I wouldn't touch a hair on her tiny little head. Oh, I'd say you'll be touching more than a hair. Oh, I've been in love with her since we were little tiny potatoes. Rene begins to drop his weapons on the counter, which include a disturbing amount of daggers, bows and arrows, and assorted weapons. But yes, he complies. The man would uh, take them and put them in basically a wooden box that he sets behind the counter to keep until Rene's return. And then he will tell him in which room he would be able to find Juna. Rene uh, excitedly enters Juna's. And they begin a back and forth regarding how long Rene had gone. Rene would recognize that she is excited to see him again, though she doesn't exactly admit to it. She basically, she gives him a lot of shit for the fact that he's been gone for so long. But it's all very good-natured. It's not like she's actually mad at him. She just wants to ensure that he knows that she's definitely kept track of how long it's been between his visits. I think it would be obvious that the two are maybe slightly in love with each other, although they should have a professional relationship. In that case, we will call what they do business, and afterwards... As her head is laying on Renee's chest, she looks slightly up at him and says, So, are you staying around this time? Or... And her voice kind of trails off as if she already knows the answer to that question. Renee pets her head and sighs. Well, I guess you'd have to ask. It's not my call, you know that. She has a heavy sigh as her fingers trail down his chest and says... Oh, it never is, is it? Well, I'm not the captain. Maybe one day I will be, and then I can bring you with me. You'll never have to miss me again. She swings her legs over his waist and sits astraddle him, looking down into his eyes with her hands on his chest and says, You need to work on getting that ship sooner rather than later. Renee kind of quirks his eyebrow. What do you mean sooner rather than later? She thinks about it for a minute and tosses her head back a little bit to uh, move her hair out of her face and says, Well, I don't want to wait another ten years for this to happen again. Renee puts his hands on her hips and holds her steady, looks her in her eyes and says, Kosaros is the captain now. Kosaros will be the captain until he's not, and when that day comes, we'll see what happens. Until then, this is what it is. Well, can't you... I don't know. Get your own boat. I don't know how this sort of thing works, but you just grab a boat and then you're captain, right? I grab a boat and then I have to find a crew and then I have to pay them. She sighs and closes her eyes for a minute and says, Well, you make it sound so complicated when you put it like that. And then she sort of chuckles to herself as she realizes that it's definitely a lot more complicated than she thought it would be but she lets the idea hang in the air, not wanting to give up on the idea of Renee being able to see her more often than he has in recent years. Renee gives a playful jiggle to Juna's hips and slaps her bottom and says, I'll be back before you know it. 
You won't even have time to miss me. Don't worry about a thing, all right? I'm going to hold you to that promise, but... You can hold me to anything, Juna. She laughs and says, until then, I want a real night out, you and me. Well, it's payday. I can make that happen. Are you sure you want to be seen in the streets with a pirate, though? An elf blood pirate. She puts a finger to Renee's lips and says, I won't tell anybody about your profession if you won't tell anybody about mine. That's a deal, babe. After that, she will roll off of Renee and dress herself back up. She leaves the room and tells the man working the front area that she's going to be done for the rest of the night. And as Renee comes out from the back, he will hand Renee his weapons back. So, Juna, a night on the town? Uh, what are you thinking? Renee gets back to strapping up all of his concealed weapons. Juna thinks about it for a minute and says, I want to go dancing. Drinks, dinner, dancing, the whole big deal. Oh, God, drinks and dinner I can do, but you know I can't dance. I think you'll be adorable dancing. And she is going to grab Renee by the wrist and lead him out of the brothel. The two of you spend the rest of the night as Juna said she wanted, eating, drinking, dancing. Renee, I assume by your admission, is probably not the best dancer. He has two left feet, correct? Even as he stumbles about the dance floor as a band of dwarves plays their instruments on the stage, surrounded by all sorts of people, Juna places her hands on Renee's face and leans into him, pressing a kiss on his lips, and she says, You can't dance for shit. Renee leans in and kisses her again and says, Well, babe, I already warned you. Too late to be embarrassed now. In spite of Juna's admission that Renee is not a great dancer, she still seems to be having a great time. After Ural's night together is over, where would Renee be retiring to? Is he going back to the ship? Would he be getting a room in an inn, or would he be going to stay the night with Juna in her place? More than likely, Renee would try and find an inn with a bar. All right. He'd be able to find an inn pretty easily. With it being a port town, there's more than its fair share of inns. In the morning, he would wake up and realize that it is quite past the time that he was expected to be back to his ship to set sail. Good gods in heaven, what have I done? Renee rushes to get dressed and return to the meeting place where he was supposed to board his ship hours ago. He finds that the Lindy Corps is surprisingly still tied into the dock, but there seems to be nobody aboard it. Um, Renee would uh, search around to see if there was any of the crew nearby, why they were still here. Is he searching on the dock or on the ship itself? He just does a cursory glance around, because if the ship would be taking off, there would probably be someone there setting up. And since there's no one on the ship, then they must be around somewhere. He does not find anybody on the docks, and when he presumably goes to check... On the ship itself, it is quite quiet as well. Eventually, as he looks around the ship, he would go into the captain's quarters where he would find Koseros lying on his bed with his eyes half-lidded. He is lying on his back with his arms off to his side, and he doesn't look to be 
doing particularly well. Renee basically dives to Kosaros's bedside, frantically trying to figure out what's wrong. Kosaros? Uh, sir, Captain? What's wrong? He slowly looks over at you and coughs again, as he's been doing more frequently here in recent days. <coughs> oh, oh, Renee, I... Oh, you're, not, you're not supposed to, to be here right now. Not supposed to? Captain, this cough, it can't be alright. What's going on? Through half-lidded eyes, Kosaros looks at Renee and he sees tears start forming in Kosaros's eyes, which is very uncharacteristic of the man, and he sort of chuckles and says, I thought they'd, thought they'd have taken care of it by now. This, I guess this crew's never gonna stop letting me down, huh? And he tries to force a smile at the joke, but it's obvious that he's incredibly weak by this point, and through his smile, he just coughs again. Rene immediately begins to cry upon sighting the tears in Kosaros's eyes and becomes uh, more hysterical. He takes Renee's hand in one of his and gives it the firmest squeeze that he can at this point and says, Renee, I've, I've always had big hopes for you, my boy. I, I want, to, want to see you go on and do great things. Well, I suppose... Suppose I won't exactly be seeing it, will I? But <coughs> I'd, I'd like to help you out in any way that I can. Can you help me out by staying with me? If only I could, my boy. He will let go of Renee's hand to place his hand on the side of his face, sort of caressing his cheek, and he says, My, my rapier's in the corner over there. Please just take it. Use it to protect yourself. This... This world isn't kind to boys like you. You, of course, know that better than me, but I want you to protect yourself, my boy. Rene is um, (laughs) partial to the fact that his captain is dying. It's very obvious, but he does not want to accept it and shoes in the direction of the rapier and focuses on Kosaros, throwing himself over the dragon. I just don't want you to leave. Kosaros pats Rene on his back a couple of times, with each pat seeming to grow weaker than the one before it. And he says, Sorry, my boy, I... It is not up to me, but you must... You must get going. Now. Quickly. Before... Before I can get you sick with this dreadful sickness. Rene gathers himself, as difficult as it might be. Attempts to stop his crying, but fails. Goes over to the corner. Taking himself up off of his captain, picks up the sword that was gifted to him. As Rene picks up the rapier, he feels a heat around him that he knows is not from his emotions. It's definitely a physical, external heat. And Kosaros looks over at him and says, My boy, run quickly. Uh, as I've told you many times before, though, a captain must go down with his ship. Rene looks to Kosaros, wanting nothing more than to express how much the Dragonborn means to him, how much he has done to him, but the heat around him, flirting him, causes him to dash out of the room, fit of tears. 
the sword clutched tightly. As Renee leaves the Lindy Corps for the last time and steps onto the dock of Portless, he sees that the ship has been untied from its dock location. Several of Renee's now former crewmates have set the rear of the ship on fire as it starts to sail out to sea and Renee would presumably watch, perhaps not, as this large wooden ship that he has called home for the majority of his life and the man that was like a father figure to him both drift out into the early morning sea, lighting a blaze and presumably eventually burning down into nothingness. Now that Renee is in public and around his crew, uh, he ceases his crying and mans up, as it were. Still clutching the sword, he turns to the closest of his crewmate. Through tearful eyes, says, What the fuck was that? He looks at you with obviously mixed emotions and says, You have to understand, it's, it's what the captain wanted. He didn't want the chance of infecting anybody else with the sickness. He didn't want to bring that on anybody else. Rene flings his hands up, completely unsure of what to do. His entire life has been upended. He doesn't even know where to go. Perhaps maybe back to Juna so he can finally cry? Rene would find his way back to Juna at her home this time. And as he explains what happened to her, she will take him into her arms, caressing his hair gently and... As he cries into her shoulder, that is where we are going to bring his backstory to a close. Joining me at this point is our fourth and final player, known by Craig. Craig, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and the character that you will be playing? Uh, sure, yeah. So my name's Craig. I'm 31 years old. I work a boring desk job during the day. I play a lot of D&D on the weekends. I've been playing D&D since I was in college. I did a lot of fourth edition, and now I've been doing a lot of fifth edition. Other than that, I'm a, I play video games. I play the ukulele. That's my hidden talent. I'm quite good in the kitchen. And my character is Ash Tanner. I don't know how much I should say now. Should, should I give kind of a broad outline? or We'll get into that once we hit the actual backstory. Okay. All right. Go for it, then. Okay. The first few years of Ash's life were not happy, to say the least. The people of his village gave looks of pity to his single father whenever they saw him out, while Ash got looks of barely disguised disdain. When Ash was old enough to understand such things, his father explained to the young boy that the reason nobody liked him, according to the boy's question, was that his mother was taken from the village when Ash was born. His mother was a very beautiful, kind, and generous woman, and many people loved her. The villagers, his father explained, were simply upset and bitter, and he explained that they would get over it in time and learn to love Ash just the way that his father does. It was a few nights after this explanation 
when Ash had a dream that he would likely remember for the rest of his life. His village was attacked in this dream by a horde of shambling, rotting people, the likes of which Ash had never seen before. The young boy didn't know what he was seeing, but he knew that it wasn't good. He saw clashes of steel and fire, and he saw people, people he knew, his friends, his family, being bitten by the hordes, eaten and killed. When he told his father of this dream, the man took young Ash to see the mayor of the village, who at first didn't believe the boy's dream, but seeing the earnest look upon the child's eyes, gathered the village's defenses, even calling in for support from the nearby capital city. Ash probably had a few sleepless nights after that, until finally he's awoken in the middle of the night by a horn that he has been taught by his father is a sign of danger, basically. What does young Ash do when he's woken up by that? So young Ash is going to kind of bolt upright in the middle of the night. His eyes will shoot open when he hears this noise, probably coming out of a dream. You know, when you're dreaming and you hear a noise, you, you think that it's part of your dream until eventually you kind of come to consciousness enough to, to realize it's a real noise. So he's going to shoot upright in bed and look around in, in his dark room in his house at night, wondering what's happening. He sees that there is no light inside of his house. The only light comes from the moon through the window that he has in his bedroom. His father would come into the room shortly thereafter. He looks at Ash and puts his finger over his own lips to tell Ash to stay quiet. And he says, the dream that you had, it's it's coming true. I need you, I need you to be a good boy. Can you be a, can you be a good boy for daddy? And, Stay in here, stay quiet, and stay hidden, yes? Ash is just kind of terrified, so he's going to just nod his head silently and just kind of sitting in bed, uh, clutching clutching his blanket and wondering what's happening. But he's not going to be inclined to, to move very far. His father kneels in front of Ash. He puts his hands on the boy's shoulders and says, I I have to go help some people. I, I promise I will be back. Just... Stay here for me, all right? Ash, Ash nods, very, uh, very scared, and asks his father if it's the vision, did it come true? Are there actually, uh, are the dead really walking? Ash's father, he's trying to maintain a look of composure on his face, put on a brave front for his child, but there's obviously a tinge of fear to it before he slowly nods and he says, but I promise I I will come back and I will protect you. Okay. Ash just kind of nods and kind of going to sit in bed or sit in his room in safety while, while the adults take care of whatever's going on outside. Ash's father is going to stand up and exit the room in a hurry. As he does, he looks back at his son but leaves before he has a chance to sort of think too much about what he's doing. Is Ash going to stay in bed for the rest of the night, or would he go look out the window and see what's happening? He, he's gonna, yeah, he's gonna, like, probably hear some noises outside, creep up to the window of his room, and look outside to see um, what's going on. As he looks outside, he sees a familiar vision from his dream just a couple of weeks previously. The undead hordes are 
entering the village, they are rather quickly cut down by the villagers, armed with swords and pitchforks and the like. Every so often, assuming Ash would watch long enough, he does see one of the undead bite into one of Ash's neighbors or someone from the village that he might recognize. Ash, amongst the fire and steel, would also see a rather large humanoid figure. It is a black-skinned orc. His skin is almost entirely pitch black. Even as it's lit by the fire, he looks like a living shadow. He is atop a very large ward, and in Ash's mind, it looks like this orc is looking directly at his window and right at the young child. Ooh, okay. He's probably keeping an eye out to, to look for his father amidst the fight, trying to keep an eye out for him because he's going to be concerned. But also, if, if it looks like this orc looks right at him through the window, he's probably going to duck down and hide at that point and wait a little while before looking out again because he would be very, very scared of that. The battle seems to wage on for quite some time. I'm not sure if Ash would be scared enough that he'd stay awake through all of it or if he would fall asleep. He, he's a young boy eventually. He's probably just going to like pass out on the floor by the window or something like that. That's kind of what I'd assume. Mm-hmm. By the time he wakes up in the morning, he finds himself placed back into his bed with his covers placed over his body. His father is sitting at the foot of his bed nearby him, sort of looking at Ash as he sleeps. Not necessarily in, like, I don't want that to sound creepy, but he's sort of looking at him in, like, a referential form of, like, I realize I could have lost my life, lost my son last night, that type of deal. He's just kind of reflecting on what happened the night before. So when, when Ash wakes up, he's he's going to sit up in bed and ask his father what happened. Oh. Clearly, the village is still standing <laughs> if, if they're both still alive, but he's going to ask what happened, I guess, uh, the night before. The man smiles at Ash and says, well, thanks to your help, your foresight, you, you helped to save the village, Ash. I, I don't think we would have been able to do nearly as well if if we hadn't listened to what you'd have said. Very few people got hurt last night. It, it's a miracle, really. Ash is um, going to be kind of dumbstruck by this information, you know, the fact that this could happen. He's, he's pretty, uh, like, shaken, but also um, probably a smile spreads across his face as he realizes that, he, you know, he wasn't crazy. It did actually come true and that he was able to help the, the town know to prepare ahead of time that's a huge relief now that it's all over now that everything's cleared up i do have a bit more work to do i'm going to help those of us that were injured it's quite a task but i've got to go for the rest of the day he looks a little bit hesitant about the idea but says would you like to help me with that or would you rather stay behind here Ash is is pretty curious to see what's happened, although he's afraid, you know, the initial threat is now over and and he would probably rather be near his father than home alone in the aftermath of this. So he uh, asks to to basically go along and he'll get up out of bed and get himself ready so he can go out into the town. 
His father definitely encourages that, says that everybody is afraid of some things and gives him sort of the whole spiel about fear or courage isn't being not afraid, but rather pushing through your fear. The two of you would go about the town, seeing to the wounded, helping to deliver supplies here and there, giving medicine to those who need it. Eventually, the pair would come upon a young adult man. He is lying in near the center of town. There are several people that Ash would recognize as healers around him, and they all have distraught looks on their faces. As Ash and his father come upon the scene, does Ash's father like walk over to help, or is he kind of tending to something else? He is tending to another nearby person, helping to uh, brace their injured leg and help them inside. Gotcha. So Ash has never really like seen death up close. Um, he's very scared about this concept. But for some reason, he's going to feel himself kind of compelled to walk over to this man that's being tended to by healers that, that look distraught. And as he gets closer, I guess, what, what does he see at this scene here? As he steps closer, the healers don't particularly notice him since he's quite a young boy. As their energy is focused on this man lying on the ground, he has a rather large gash in the corner of his head above his right eye. It's bleeding quite profusely. And no matter what the healers are doing, they cannot seem to put a stop to this bleeding. And Ash would hear one of them start to say, well, this one, he seems to be a lost cause. Should we should we bring somebody over to start preparing the burial rites? So Ash is going to kind of walk up, like you said, mostly unnoticed. He's just kind of a small boy in the chaos of the, the aftermath of this battle. And again, he's he's afraid, but feels compelled for some reason, to get closer to this man that's on the ground here. So he's going to kind of walk up and just kneel on the ground next to this guy. And, you know, as this person's struggling here on the ground, just takes his hand and holds it. You know, Ash is pretty young and has these little small child hands, so he kind of takes both of his small hands and, and takes this man's larger hand in his and just holds it for a minute. The man is pretty much unconscious. His hand lays limp in ashes for several seconds, but after holding his hand for a short amount of time, Ash would watch as the man's eyes start to flutter open. The wound above his eye, slowly skin starts to regrow over it as his face starts to heal itself. And one of the healers looks down at Ash and says, what, what are you doing, boy? Have you, have you done this type of thing before? And Ash has not done this type of thing before. As he holds this man's hand, he can kind of feel the essence of this man's life kind of like struggling to hang on. And he can kind of just will it back to life, kind of will this man back to, to a more stable condition. He doesn't understand this or, or where this is coming from or why he's able to do this, but he can feel himself kind of putting life back into this person as he's healing. The healers seem dumbfounded that this boy, this young child, is able to do more than they were able to. And after they see that this young man has 
recovered from his injury, they are going to help him away from Ash and to his own home. A couple of days after that, they bring the mayor over to Ash's home, and he talks to young Ash. They ask him about what he was doing and if he could do it again. And after that point, Ash's life in the town changes rather rapidly. People seem to be much more accepting of him. Everything before his healing of the man almost seems to be forgotten about by the people of the town. Anytime that a sickness or somebody breaks a leg, any sort of illness, people come to Ash to be healed. He becomes quite the popular child over the next several years as people, whether Ash realizes it or not, people in his town tend to be becoming more reckless as they realize that with Ash around, the only death they have to fear seems to be old age. It's a fair number of years later, and Ash's father is standing with him, now a young man in their living room. His father once again puts his hand on Ash's shoulder and says, Now remember what I've told you, son. Keep keep your hood up. Not, not everybody's going to be as understanding of your lineage as I am, as some of the people in this town are. You need to... Make sure you hide those ears, you understand? Ash is, is going to nod and, and says he understands he'll um he'll make sure that, that he keeps his hood up. Um it's likely that by this point as well, Ash doesn't understand why, since he's lived in this kind of small town his whole life, why this is a problem. He just understands that it is. And he's probably grown his hair out uh longer that which makes it easier to hide uh his ears as well. Be be careful out there, okay? Uh, I will. I want to see you come back to me. I, You see tears come to your father's eyes as he says, I can't stand the thought of losing you after your mother. Ash will give his father a, a big hug and say, I will. I'll be careful. It'll be all right. I'll come back. He hands you a small pouch of gold coins and says, just make sure that you take care of yourself. I know the mayor's talked to you. He wants you to go and see other places, learn other ways, and see if you can help with this sickness that's been spreading. But I want to see you come back. Ash will kind of uh, wipe a tear out of his own eye and at the emotion of leaving home for the first time, really, and uh, just nods in understanding that he's, he, he's going to make sure that he's safe and that he's able to come home okay. As Ash leaves his hometown... He spends the next bit of his life moving from town to town around Eloria, seeing different cities, healing those that need it, and spending time in temples to various gods of the region. Eventually, he finds himself being pulled to a small stone building on the outskirts of a town called Rusit. The building is almost completely covered over in moss and is a very unassuming building. Ash would enter into it to find the center of the only room. There is a small pedestal upon which is only a rusty set of iron scales. 
Ash feels himself compelled to reach out a hand and touch this set of scales, upon which time he he hears a voice in his head speaking to him. The voice is somehow at the same time both incredibly strange to him, completely unknown, but also familiar. It seems to straddle the line between a masculine voice and a feminine one. And this voice introduces him to the teachings of Kelimvor, the balance of life and death, and all the things that go along with it. And the voice tells him that the sickness that has been spreading across Eluria threatens this balance. And Ash is tasked by this voice to go out and find a cure for the sickness and put an end to it before it can destroy all life in Eluria as it is currently known. Yeah, Ash, Ash is just kind of compelled in a strange way to, to travel to this small stone structure and to touch these scales. Um, and he's hearing this voice in his head kind of telling him, by this point, he's traveled around to different towns, healing people, trying to learn um, where this power that he has might be coming from. And he's probably encountered the sickness already and found that for whatever reason, this is something that he can't heal. It's like something with anyone else, with any other ailment, he can feel the balance of life and death and, and can heal what is harming someone. But the sickness is kind of this thing that, that blocks him. He can't uh, shift the balance back towards life when someone has the sickness. So he doesn't know where this voice is coming from, but it's kind of telling him something that he already knew, which is that this sickness is different in some way and that it is a, a serious threat to the people of this world. So he's he's going to be kind of shocked to hear this voice in his head suddenly and, and hears it what it has to say. And then after it, it dissipates, he's just going to kind of slowly pull his hand back from this set of iron scales, not really sure what's just happened or, or what caused it. For the next few months, Ash would hear the voice intermittently, guiding him to different towns and villages where he may be able to pick up bits of information on the sickness and places that this voice tells Ash are of particular importance to him. A few months after hearing the voice for the first time, as Ash is sleeping in a camp between towns, he would feel a sharp stinging sensation in his sleep. And the next thing he knows, he is waking up with a blindfold over his eyes. His hands are shackled and he feels the cold metal against his face. <laughs> Probably like anyone in this situation, he's going to be very confused and be kind of struggling, but it sounds like he's blindfolded and shackled. He can't uh, can't really do a lot, but maybe call out who's there and, and what do they want? Why are they doing this to him? Get away from the cart, you hear terror, and then you hear the crossbow bolt splinter against the wood. So Ash is in the back of a cart and he's been riding along, I guess, in complete darkness, blindfolded. And I, I just hear the sound of crossbows splintering the wood of the cart. Are my feet bound as, as well? I'm assuming I'm kind of stuck. Yeah, when Ash tries to move his feet, they are bound together as well. So he's going to try to struggle to sit upright and kind of shout out into the night, Who's there? Help! I'm, I'm being held in the back of this cart. You hear the horse that you presume to be 
dragging the cart along, lets out a whinny, and the sound of hooves against dirt as it gallops away from where Ash is currently being held. So it, it sounds like the horses run away from the cart. I, uh, I go over to the cart and I kind of like pull back the covers and I look inside. You see a very, very panicked Ash, blindfolded, trying to look around, but he's unable to move much or do much of anything being shackled. Are you, are you all right? Let me get you half those. And I, uh, I work to free Ash from the restraints. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I was asleep at a campsite and I guess I've been kidnapped. I don't know why anyone would do this. I'm just a simple healer traveling from town to town. Does, uh, does he look injured at all? He has a small injury where it seems like a crossbow bolt would have shot him. But aside from that, it doesn't look like he's been injured beyond that now. You see that she herself is holding a crossbow and you, she looks at you and says, like bolt wound. It's nasty. Let me, let me have a look. And she kind of like cuts a bit of cloth and kind of turn like, bandages the wound a little bit. Ash is now able to, to see as soon as you've removed his blindfold and he's freed and says, no, no, it's it's fine. I'll be all right. And he just places his hand over the, the minor wound and just kind of heals it so that the wound closes up and, and the skin returns to normal. And he asks, who are you? How did you know I was here? What's going on? I, I, was, uh, I was just passing by and I heard you call out. My name's Ash. I, I don't know who's who's kidnapped me here or why they would do this. Um, but thank you. I, it seems like you've saved my life. I don't know what these people wanted with me, but it couldn't be good if they blindfolded me in the middle of the night. And with his minor bolt wound now healed, he's going to try to get up and hop out of this cart to, to see what's going on outside and why this has happened. I'm, I'm sorry I, uh, I let them get away. I couldn't stop them. It's all right. I'm less worried about that than I am about the fact that I'm safe now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Who are you? She pauses for a moment and says, um, my name's Tara. On that note, I think that is where we will end this backstory. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to thank you for listening to the backstory episodes of LGBT and D. I'm so encouraged by all of the support we've had from the community already and can't wait to share with you what we've done so far. We will be back next week with our first episode of the campaign proper as all four characters will be meeting up and setting out on their first adventure together. Music in these first two episodes was provided by Kevin McLeod and the information for those tracks is in the description. Audio editing was provided by Podbear Audio. If you liked what you've heard so far, please feel free to leave us a review or share us with your friends. It really means a lot and helps us to grow as a podcast. Thanks again, be safe, and have a great week.